Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. Hello, welcome everybody. Anyone tired from daylight savings? <laughs> I was. Oh, that happened today. That happened, yeah. I was like, it's five on my oven clock when I woke up. It was like five in the morning. It's like gnarly. Yeah, so welcome to Inside LA Long Beach Sunday Sit. Um... One of those days I want to keep meditating. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing that I'm going to say is better than the silence anyway. Um, So, yeah. So we're going to talk about... um, Well, at least I posted on um, Kate's suggestion that we talk about a couple of the seven factors of awakening. But then I realized, like preparing for the chat, is that... I did, we chatted about energy a few weeks ago, but we never really unpacked where this fits into the system, like the Buddhist system, the seven factors of awakening. And I thought it would be fun to back all the way up and just kind of get a high level view. And this is as good for me personally too, like to check back in every once in a while and say like, what am I doing again? (laughs) Like, why am I doing this? Like. And where does all fit in? If you're, if you've been around a bit, it's, it's you know the the puzzle has probably come together for you, in regards to the the Buddhist path and the lists and the list of the lists and where this all fits in. It's kind of a puzzle, and and it can feel overwhelming, like when you just keep hearing a new list and you're like, whoa, that's a whole new list, you know, like wow, where does this fit in? So the seven factors, it's a whole new list. And I wrote them down, because when I start talking about the list, then I start confusing myself with the lists, which I stay on track. But, so let's just go, kind of go back before we get into them and see where they fit in. One place that I like to start is What the, the teachings that bring us to the cushion, and then the teachings that are on the cushion. So these are like two big categories, right? So um, there's a lot of kind of when we think about the practice, a lot of times we think about the practice on the cushion, like how to meditate and whatnot. But actually, there's a lot that has to happen before we want to get to the cushion, even on a daily basis, <laughs> like to get ourselves to sit, you know. So to go back to like the, four, the Four Noble Truths, right, the very beginning. So the Buddha taught you know, that we just had this statement, which I think is really amazing, that there is suffering, that there is suffering. And even that statement is, is quite interesting, because he could have just said, he could have just skipped to the meditation part, like why didn't he say, like, how'd, you, how'd you become enlightened? You know, he just had this enlightenment experience. And the first teaching, however, he doesn't say, hey, I was sitting underneath this tree and I let everything be as it is and this thing happened and now I'm not suffering. But instead, he said, 
there is suffering. And it's kind of like our first introduction to labeling, like what is, right? So he named it, like we all suffer, right? And we all know that we suffer, but the labeling of that is fairly profound. Like, oh, there's suffering. Being that we can label it, there's also this kind of imputation that there might be a way out, right? So by labeling it, he also posed the question like, what if I wasn't? <laughs> like, you know, this poses the question, like, if there's suffering, like, what if I'm not suffering? And this is very anti-establishment, right? Who are we to think we could be free of suffering? So if you tell people, yeah, I just want to be happy and everything, they're like, oh, man, you're one of those. <laughs> Life sucks, deal with it. Just, you know... Just take on the beating of life like the rest of us and then die. <laughs> like, that's how we do it, you know. But if you say, no, I'm actually trying to like, just be with life but not do the suffering part. They're like, oh, you're crazy. <laughs> and all the good people are crazy. So Buddha was probably nuts at the time, you know. So, yeah, and of course Buddha is saying, hey, I think you're crazy to think that we can't be happy, you know, this is like delusion, you know, that we can be happy. So that the second truth, you know, he said, well, there's a cause of this suffering, like there's a, there's a reason for it. And I remember being physically excited when I heard this, like I, the first time I ever heard the Four Noble Truths, I remember I was in the Gampa Land of Medicine Buddha, and Venerable Tenzin Shogi was talking, and, and I thought, She's going to tell me why I suffer here in a moment. This is going to be incredible because the Buddha found out a way and the Buddha in all the pictures looks very peaceful. And, and so this is going to be so cool. And she said, what does she say? What's the cause of suffering? Attachment. Go ahead and say it out loud. Yeah. Attachment. Attachment, yeah. And I was like, ah, what's that? <laughs> like, what do you mean? Attachment. And so, like, when we hear this attachment, there might not be a huge relief. Like, oh, that's it? Because it doesn't take us too long to figure out we're the actual problem. <laughs> like, oh, attachment. He could have been like, hey, I figured out why you're suffering you you know like you're suffering like you're the cause and not not to, i mean we all suffer right not to make it like a laughing matter if we're suffering right because we all do but there's this still this sense and like i still struggle with this every day maybe you do too of like i don't really take refuge in non-grasping mind or non-attachment i still think like i really if this happened i would be happy you know lately i've been really wanting to eat anything I want and not get fat. Like, that's really it, because I'm going to Hawaii. It's a true thing. I'm going to Hawaii in the summer. My best friend's getting married, and he's one of these freak of nature people. People, He's like my age, but he's like always ripped, you know? And, um, and I'm gonna go to his wedding, and I'm 44, and I'm, I don't look the way I used to, and I want to. And I'm thinking, 
Now, if the Buddha would have said, hey, I'm going to show you the way to eat anything you want and look awesome, I would be like, sign me up. Like, where do I meditate? Like, what do I need to do? Right? But it wasn't. It was like this non-craving, like, you know, why don't you just go to the beach, take your shirt off, shirt off, and however you look, that's fine. Be at peace with how, how you look within your body. You have a body. The, you know, Satipatthana Sutta, the first foundation of mindfulness. You have a body. That's it. There's non-grasping of, and I want it to be like this. You have the grasping mind of, this is how reality is. You look like this. You look like this. That's how you're not, you know, you don't need to look a certain way. You just need to remove the imputation that you should look a certain way. Right? So again, to back up just a little bit, we're not at the cushion yet. We're just, he's just pointing to like motivational factors to get us there. Like, okay, see what I mean? See where the suffering comes in? Okay, you see this, see this? Pointing. So the third noble truth, even though I kind of just said it, what's the third noble truth? There's a way out. And and what is that? The Eightfold Path. Yeah, the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is, so he'll say it though, that's the way out, but it's what? So if att if attachment is the cause, then what is it? Non-attachment. Non Non-attachment, yeah. Just splitting hairs, like detachment makes it sound like we're kind of numbing out. Just total splitting hairs, you know? But like oh, no, we're not detached, like we're actually accepting everything as it is. So in a way that we're more in it, but not attached to it. I could be with you, but That's not follow. Important you. To split, I feel like, yeah. yeah. Like, when you like detach, I feel like you then become more pessimistic. It's much more yeah. of a negative connotation than just acceptance. Agreed. Yeah, or nihilistic. Like yeah, it doesn't matter. Care, like carelessness or something could arise. Yeah. So then he moved into, yeah, the Eightfold Path. In the beginning of the Eightfold Path, so he starts out, again, we're not at the cushion yet. Right view. Starts out with right view. Right? What is right view? This is kind of like the direction that we're going, where we're headed. So there he kind of poses the question of um, this, this Buddha nature, of this freedom from suffering. So this is where we're headed. Right view is kind of the beginning although these all tie together, but it's also the end. So it's the beginning and it's also the end. Right? So this is right view. Free of delusion. That everything's okay no matter what I look like. Right? That would be right view. So the second one is right motivation or right intention. So again, not at the cushion yet. But, if we're going to go head towards this freedom of suffering, if we do it with wrong view, with right, I'm sorry, with wrong motivation, then there's not going to be a true freedom anyway. If we're doing it selfishly, for example, like, I'm going to free myself from suffering so I could just be totally awesome in a world of everyone's suffering and I could poke, a, poke fun at everyone's suffering and I feel great. <laughs> And this is not exactly like right motivation, right intention. Right.
So then he moves into the ethics part of the Eightfold Path. And this is actually the first introduction to transforming the mind. This is really the first introduction that we're actually now starting to transform the mind. Right speech, right livelihood, right conduct. Now we're he's actually starting to point towards that, right? Because when we practice ethics, we can notice the change in our minds, which is, this is a, his whole point, is that you're transforming that. That's what's going to actually be the cause, ultimately, of your contentment. Yeah. So this is the first introduction. Then we go to right effort. And usually, you know, that has kind of a twofold aspects. Right effort is the effort that it takes to nurture the ethics part, right? And to say no to unethical behavior. And also the effort we need for the next piece, which is mindfulness and concentration. And that's where we're finally on the cushion. But we kind of got to drink the Kool-Aid first, right? We got to say, yeah, you know, I do see that this is suffering, I do notice that I'm the cause of, like I'm adding to it, right? Because these things are arising, but my dissonance to it, my aversion to it, and my attachment to it, this is really what's causing me the suffering part, right? So our life doesn't change, but our relationship to it can. And when our relationship to it changes, then there's a relief of suffering. Life is a flowing river. If we stand in the river, and try to push against it, problems. If we turn around, lift our feet up, and flow with the river, there's not even any dissonance, you notice, here with the current, not a problem. So saying that we're on board with all that, now we get to the teachings of on the cushion. The seven factors of enlightenment begin right there. They begin at the end of the Eightfold Path with right mindfulness. Well, not right mindfulness. It's just mindfulness. But hold on. I'm going to back up one little. <laughs> Usually it's taught the hindrances are taught first. The seven factors are the anti-hindrances. <laughs> They're the positive states of mind. The hindrances are... The hindrances are more of the negative aspects of mind, but the hindrances traditionally are found first. Unless you're a weirdo. Most of us, when we move in and we just begin meditation, it's not happy, happy, joy, joy from the very beginning, usually. So that we notice we kind of spend a lot of time on the hindrances, because it's what we notice first. Like, we, we go down to meditate, and even though we've seen all the pretty pictures of everyone meditating, and they look really peaceful, but then we come into contact with our own mind, and we see the hindrances. We see attachment and aversion, right? We see worry, concern. We see slothfulness, dull mind. We see doubt. Why am I doing this? Can I really do this? Going back to the thing, like maybe I should just lose weight and take a, get a tan and then I'll be happy and whatever, you know. We kind of go back like, is this even worth it? All that stuff. Yeah. 
I swear if somebody gave me a ton of money and so-and-so loved me that I'd be happy. So doubt. So these are usually the things that we meet first. But if we stick with it, the seven factors arise. And so one, one as we go through there, you might go through these, people think, how do I cultivate these seven factors? There are ways to cultivate it, yet in big picture, recognize that these are a happening that happen through meditation. So this is kind of a natural arising, step by step, and they are linear, but they're not. I'll, I'll kind of unpack that for a little bit. But they are linear. So let me unpack that a little bit. Seven factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness. Paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. Mindfulness. Right. If we have mindfulness, we can move into investigation. So we start to investigate what is. Like the Buddha investigated his suffering. right? So we can investigate the true nature of things. So this is the second one, investigation. Mindfulness investigation. If we have investigation, then we have energy. Energy is anti-boredom. Energy follows will. So if we're mindful and we're investigating, energy will follow. When we have energy, this sets up the mind and we're investigating and we have the energy to investigate. Then we move into rapture because the mind is starting, starting to know itself. This is where Buddha, somewhere in the universe, starts to smile. Like, I told you. <laughs> right? There it is. Like you're starting to see it for the first time, this rapture. But it took a long time to get there. Yeah, you just didn't sit down and just say, oh, man, I meditate, blah, 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 and then boom, rapture, right? It took a while to get there, to find that inside yourself, to not look outward for long enough, not look outward, to look inward long enough to find a little bit of rapture, a little bit of joy. If you have rapture, then you can notice calm, calm, serenity, tranquility. So what's the difference there? Why does that one lead to another? I just saw this yesterday. We took our dog to the dog beach. When dogs jump out of the car, it's rapture. <laughs> <laughs> they jump out of the car and they're like just going nuts. Because they're like, I thought we were going to the beach. Oh my God, we're at the beach. <laughs> my life is just wonderful, right? So the first couple minutes, they're just tugging on the leash, tugging on the leash, right? They're in rapture. They're off the leash and they go nuts, 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 you know? And then they're just in this nice state of calm, happy. You know, like I'm at the beach. They even sit down and they're with their owners and just taking it all in and running and playing. But it's like this, this, there's an evenness to it, you know, it's this calm. Because the mind can recognize calm, it can go into concentration. This is the next factor, concentration. Because the mind now can recognize calm, it can move into concentration. Being that it can move into concentration, it can 
find solitude away from the hindrances long enough in a sustained and reliable way that it could recognize equanimity. The recognition of equanimity is not attachment. Yeah? Until the next thought comes that says we're not good enough and we believe it and we start over again. Hold on. All the way back. So those are the seven factors, and don't worry about remembering them. I'll send them out on the email. <clears throat> I'll, there's like lists of lists. I'll send them out on the email and newsletter and stuff. But um, I used to think that, you know, when I heard of the seven factors of enlightenment, I thought that they were these massive stages within my practice that I would be meditating for a while on you know, at this stage, and I would be, you know, feeling, I would be in the energy stage, and then I'd be in the rapture stage, like, every time I meditated, I'd be in rapture until I, until I kind of overcome rapture, and I settled into calm, and then calm would be, you know, and then my mind would be really focused, and, like, maybe blocks of years, I would be in these stages (laughs) until I would arrive, you know? And maybe, maybe that does happen, but what I've realized out of my own practice is that these could happen to us intermittently throughout our practice. We can go on retreat, and for a few days you're in rapture, or, or equanimity, or, you know, all kind of, this happens from the morning meditation to the evening meditation, right? You could experience these things. You could, you could experience profound states of concentration. How many of you had, have had profound states of concentration? Yeah? And the next time you meditated, you were a mess. Anyone experience that? Yeah, right? And even, and even through this, like not even kind of get to these, but just be, be in a mess of hindrances, right? Maybe you sit down to meditate and you're in the mess of the hindrances. You're in worry. Yeah? You're in dullness, right? You're in big craving mind. Like, you don't, you're not even really getting into these seven factors, right? Maybe you're there. And that's okay, too. So, and we're meeting all of this with a sense of openness that wherever you are, remember that your Buddha nature is looking at that. So all of these things we could look at on a relative level. And then remember, that which is looking at the hindrances is not the hindrance. That which is looking at rapture, even, is not rapture. And we have to remember this, too, because we're meeting this with non-judgmental mind. Because things like rapture and bliss, and one reason why it's not talked about a lot, is that that could lead to more craving, right? And also, too, when we see our negative mind states, that could lead to more aversion, right? So we're meeting all of these with another list that we didn't that we didn't bring up yet, but we're meeting all of this with the four immeasurables: the open heart, right, love and compassion, 
and equanimity we find in there as well, right, at the end. So equanimity has, is found in a few different places, has a few different aspects to it. So rapture is one that's a little bit, can be confusing. I want to read a little bit about the different aspects of rapture. And uh, if we have time, maybe a little bit of equanimity too. How many of you have this book or read this book, Mindfulness? So this is Joseph Goldstein, and they collected a lot of his talks. But they said, um, I don't mean this in an aversion way, but they, they asked him, <laughs> they asked him, like, what do you want to name the book? And, you know, there's like 26,000 books on, on mindfulness on Amazon now or something silly. But um, he said, you know, I want to I wanna title it Mindfulness. And they said, oof, you know, there's, there's a lot of books on that, kind of a buzzword and all that stuff. And why? And he says, because I want to take it back. Hmm. And, and again, I don't mean that in an aversion way. Like, I think secular mindfulness is wonderful and, you know, we teach it inside LA and whatnot. But this is his way of, of saying, you know, this is the traditional version of it. It's Mindfulness is something that's encapsulated in the entirety of this book you know you can't you cannot pluck something out of its system and call it that's it's it dependent upon the other factors of that system and then call it just that thing mm. it doesn't quite work like that mm. mindfulness has been taught within a system for thousands of years and you can't just pluck it out and call it that right so i think that's really interesting and you know that he did that and i highly recommend it it's such a beautiful um a beautiful book outlining this system that we're talking about today. So he talks about five grades of rapture. And maybe not a lot of commentary on here. I just want you to kind of kind of get a feel for it because it's kind of like what's this mean, you know? How do we recognize when rapture is present? How do we experience it and how can it be cultivated? The Buddha spoke of five grades, or levels, of rapture. The first is called minor rapture. This is like, eh, a little <laughs> bit. Uh, when this is present, there is a lifting of the spine, and we could hold the posture effortlessly. There might be feeling of goosebumps or a trembling of the body. I like that. I like these pointing out these very subtleties, just like when you can hold your posture effortlessly, isn't that feel good? That feels nice, you know. The second is called momentary rapture, which is felt as a sudden jolt of energy, like a flash of lightning. It might feel like when an elevator, like in, it might feel like when an elevator we're in suddenly makes a short drop. At one point in my practice, I was lying down, I was doing lying down meditation and as a jolt of this momentary rapture became strong, I was suddenly thrust into an upright position. The third kind is called wave-like or showering rapture. This manifests as thrilling kinds of sensation coming over the body again and again, like waves lapping the shore. Sometimes with each wave, the feeling of rapture becomes stronger and stronger. This one, I had a profound experience of that one one time. It was quite interesting. 
The fourth kind is uplifting rapture. When this kind is present, it feels like the whole body has risen up into the air and is no longer touching the ground, as if it were seated on a cushion of air or floating up and down. I reported a kind of experience like this to my teacher, saying that it felt like I was on a magic carpet. Because he likes meditation reports to become accurate descriptions of what is actually being felt in terms of body elements, and not so interested in your poetic description of it, his only comment to me was, have you ever been on a magic carpet? <laughs> his comment did help to deflate my unnoticed attachment to this pleasure, this pleasant state. Another manifestation of this kind of rapture can happen in walking meditation, when we might feel we are sinking into the earth or walking on an elastic rubber membrane, this kind of softness, you know. He talks about this other thing, I don't want to just keep reading it, but he was in a three-month retreat. Yeah, so during a three-month three retreat at Insight, IMS, Insight Meditation Society, one meditator reported to me that he was doing lying-down meditation in his room. He felt his body actually rise a couple inches off the bed. I didn't know whether it was just a perception of floating or if it really happened, so in the end I said, did you note it? <laughs> so, you know, I think rapture, rapture can manifest in a lot of different ways. I think the key to it, and I've heard it said like, you know, these types of things when we're talking about raptures, more like signposts that we're on the right path, you know, just like to take note of them. And of course, what's interesting about rapture, this is like, in the moment when rapture arises, like automatically, we can grab it, you know? We're like, this is awesome. And then um, it goes away. And to really trust the practice. What I've realized is that rapture arises, you know, as a manifestation of this energy and this focus, you know, and this attention. And if we stay with that, like this is the most important thing to always reiterate, right? So we're not staying with the cultivation of rapture, we're staying with the practice of just being with what is as it is, like, or coming back to your object, coming back. These things, these things arise naturally. Many of you heard me say many times, like, how do you create a runner's high? Right? Run. Run. <laughs> That's how you do it. I, I want a runner's high, I'm sure you do. Sounds great, you know? The other part of that is like totally suffering through the running, you know what I mean? And, and that's no fun. So we all want our runner's high, but in meditation too, we want that. How do you get there? Meditate. That's how you get there. Okay, a little bit about equanimity. So this is the wisdom aspect of equanimity. Um, and again, equanimity is found as a divine abode and you know, these different aspects, but this is the wisdom aspect. Practicing the great way, the equanimity of non-judgmental awareness supports the development of all other awakening factors. As they become strong, we gain even deeper insights into the three characteristics. 
we know the truth of change, not only as a conceptual understanding, but also in the direct experience of things arising and passing away. Some, sometimes this experience of impermanence is on a macro level and then increasingly on a momentary, momentary micro level. At this point, our meditation is less involved with what is arising than with the process of change itself. We experience the truth of dukkha, this, this unsatisfactory nature of, of existence, of out, outward existence, not inward. The unreliability and unsatisfied, unsatisfying nature of conditioned phenomena. We see the continual dissolution of everything that arises and at times even the momentary dissolution of consciousness itself. There are many stories and discourses of people getting enlightened by just hearing, by hearing just this one teaching. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. What would it be like if we really let this teaching in, if our understanding of it were complete? We wouldn't hold on to anything. And we experience the truth of selflessness when we see nothing lasts long enough to be called self. All phenomena arise out of appropriate causes and conditions, unsubstantial, empty of any inherent self-existence. Phenomena are like rainbows, colored light arising out of momentary changing conditions, both vivid and unsubstantial at the same time. And again, if that sounds a little abstract, it kind of should. You know, if we're coming, depending on where we're at on this progression, you know, this is very natural. Like, we're, we're speaking of those things, and in fact, the experiential hit of that is quite rare. Like, first it feels very, and maybe sounds very abstract on the conceptual level. Then, on a conceptual level, we think, okay, I get that which we really don't until we, and then we experience it. And then we're like, oh yeah, like, and there's many levels of that too, you know. So, um, again, meeting all of this with uh, loving kindness and non-judgment, just knowing that, yeah, there's this place of, of equanimity. And part of the equanimity teachings is seeing everything in the state of evenness. And so this is what he's pointing here to, pointing to, to here, with phenomena arising and passing away in the state of evenness. So, do we want to break up into small groups? Can I ask a clarifying question? Yeah, yeah. So, is um, the seven factors for awakening are an on-the-cushion teaching? I'm sorry, what? You were saying there's the on-the-cushion and off-the-cushion yeah. teachings. Yes. So, seven factors of awakening is on-the-cushion. These are experiences. Yeah, it's more on the cushion. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They all intermingle, but yeah. Thank you for that clarifying, yeah. Yeah, so we do have, we don't have a lot of time for, for group discussion, but um, I think it would still be fun to break off into little groups, so maybe no more than three because we don't have that much time. And just seeing how this lands for you, and then maybe kind of investigating as far as your own practice goes, like what part of that you want to emphasize, you know, kind of where you're at, and 
maybe some emphasizing or enhancement of certain aspects of, of your practice? Or how that landed for you today? It could be anything. Yeah. All right. Any, um, any insights or revelations that you want to share with the larger group? Again, to, like I just drop this in every so often that to make it a safe share. Um, and that is that when, when we're sharing in the larger group like this, that we keep it with the pronoun I. So if somebody shares something, you have something to add to it, totally cool. Just stay with your own experience so we all feel safe to share. Yeah. So I uh, just to get clarification of, as far as what you talked about today. Mm-hmm. So you talked about the four agreements and the eightfold path. The four noble truths. The, the four noble truths, the um, eightfold path. Yep. The seven factors of awakening. Of awakening, and the seven aversion. Or is it just the aversion? five hindrances. Five hindrances. Correct. And then after that, you mentioned four. Uh, uh, you mentioned compassion and joy. And the four ma- Brahma Viharas. Can you repeat that? The four Brahma Viharas? That's what I wanted to know. Cool. A plus, by the way. Uh-huh. <laughs> what? I was going to ask if next time you talk, you can give the exact same talk, because every time you give it, I learn something new. <laughs> Me too. Like every time I hear these things. Yeah. The, the four Brahma Viharas, that's love. When love meets suffering, it turns to compassion. When love meets goodness, right? When someone's doing well, so we call the sympathetic joy or rejoicing in other people's happiness. And then when love meets, um, there's kind of two ways. It's equanimity, right? But it's kind of two different versions in Tibetan. They kind of say like friends become enemies, enemies become friends, strangers become loved ones, loved ones can be enemies. So like it's... It's making sure that we see everybody equal. But then also, too, it's like the wisdom piece of love. And so it's like if we love somebody, but they're still hurting themselves, we could continue to love them anyway. So it's saying that everybody's responsible for their own actions and whatnot. I can continue to love them, even though that I see them harming themselves. So, What is yeah. the um, English? Equanimity. No, you said from for Brahma Viharas. Yeah. Heavenly we, abodes. Oh, did you mention? And in Tibetan, and in Tibetan they say four measurables. And that, oh, just okay. to be confusing. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's like the fruit of the practice. Is that what that is? Or? That's just like the heart of the practice. So heart and wisdom, the two wings. So this is more of the the heart based practices. Okay. I see, I see those as infused with everything we talked about. Mm-hmm. Those heavenly abodes are infused in, every, in all of that. Okay. Yeah, just, they say 100% mindfulness, 100% compassion. That's the practice. Okay. You know? Yeah. What's the difference between the seven factors for awakening and the paramis? The perfections, yeah. Why do you have to bring that up? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, the six perfections are kind of laid out 
you know, more along the lines of the Eightfold Path, so like in the Tibetan, the Mahayana, mm -hmm. they follow more of the six perfections as a way like the Eightfold Path. They don't really speak much of that. It's like the way of the Bodhisattva, mm -hmm. right? And so some of the elements that we spoke about today are in there. And so the seven factors are more of just the mind awakening, either through the Eightfold Path or the six perfections, right? How the mind awakens, the flavor and the attitudes of the mind as it awakens is the seven factors. And again, I'm going to just send a list of all these lists. <laughs> yeah. Master list. Yeah. The master list. Whoa. Who we want? Oh, I'm trying to save myself here. Um, I <laughs> said in my group <laughs> um, that uh, so mindfulness appears like in a bunch of lists. But your talk today gave me the insight that mindfulness in the list of the seven factors for awakening is like the experience of mindfulness. So um, if you separate things as teachings off the cushion that kind of get you there and teachings on the cushion, off the cushion mindfulness is like the method, paying attention on purpose to the present moment non-judgmentally. And the mindfulness that sort of is part of the seven factors of awakening is the experience of mindfulness when it's got momentum and it flows, and it flows into the next, the other factors. So it's like, um, if mindfulness has more than one definition or explanation, it kind of changes according to which list it's with. Like, that was kind of my takeaway. Not really, okay. with <laughs> mindfulness. So I just I dug my... No, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Like, equanimity could have different flavors, but... And, you know, maybe this is my two cents, but there, there's a conceptual aspect to all of these teachings, mm -hmm. which is like the instruction, right? Yeah. Paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally, is the instruction. Right. Mindfulness is your experience of the instruction. And informally, so the day-to-day, -day, so there's another aspect that we're kind of t talking on the cushion, we could practice mindfulness. Mm -hmm. uh, we could also practice mindfulness anytime, anywhere, sure. right? But if we're actually doing it, then it's the same, whether walking meditation, sitting meditation, eating meditation, look at my crazy monkey mind meditation, right? right? Like, child, my child's going crazy meditation. You know that. <laughs> um, you know, that's all the, the, the same... We could bring the same authentic mindfulness to all of those things, mm -hmm. yeah. But in the, you know, in the um, the seven factors, yeah, it's definitely pointing to all of those things that arise when we practice it for real. Right. right. You know, but in in the April path, it's when we practice it for real too. Concentration and mindfulness there are not just as like, like sila is not just there just just to look at right. our ethics is to do. Sure. Yeah. I think we're a little more in agreement then. Cool. Right. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Awesome. And then Rick. Where does creative flow belong in the mindfulness continuum? Because it's 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 something that I'm trying to encourage people I work with to experience. Mm -hmm. It's something that's maybe not intentional though, I mean, at least initially. Yeah, like um like the the creative, the artistic um, aspects, you know, this is, um, like Zen might say, don't know mind, you know, Chogam Chumpa would teach art as meditation a lot, wrote a book on it, um, and said that 
Like without art and creativity, you couldn't reach enlightenment, which I, I think it's his pointer to don't know mind, you know, where like um, art is, I wrote a little poem that art is a conversation between the known and the unknown. You know, it's kind of in the corridor between known and the, un, uh, the known and the unknown. So I think that that artistic aspect, that creativity, um, we can move into that kind of as a meditative force, but it's not so spelled out like in some of these teachings. It's not so spelled out in, in that way, but it's definitely a way to get to that, that freedom of expression, you know? Yeah. To like kind of like, you know, a revelatory, you know, experience. And that it, you know, people realize that they can not have the chatter going on for a moment. But I'm, I'm ambivalent about whether or not to make it a, you know, mindful process, you know, and I'm sharing it because and it kind of, you know, puts you focusing on it as opposed to just experiencing it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if we need labels like that so much to be a mindfulness. I, I, I think creativity and like sports and that all of that, that same thing goes when we're just kind of in a samadhi, single-pointed focus, whether it be an athlete being extremely creative on a basketball court within a split second thinking, oh my, oh my God, I'm going to do this and this and this. I mean, how could anyone think of that? It's just a happening. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely this, this state of, of being the collective of the mind chitta. <laughs> the mind stuff is collected in a very succinct way. Um, and again, that also points to like, what is our intention and motivation for this, right? So we're using this tool of the mind to realize ourself, you know? So some people might use it for sports or create art or whatnot. We're taking that and we're, we're, we're turning it here to look at the true nature of mind, true nature of self, you know? So different aspects of this practice can be used for different things and we're using it over here. All the same stuff. And I want to be respectful of everyone's time, so like one last one last question. Oh. Um, I was just wondering, I have a lot of anxiety, and yeah. sometimes if I meditate, uh, my mind's just going all over the place. I have like monkey mind, and I'm thinking good thoughts, bad thoughts, and sometimes that creates more anxiety for me. Yeah. Is there... Um, if anyone has a suggestion on how to like accept it and sort of quiet it down at some point? Yeah, it's a big one. Um, as most of you know, I work at a depression anxiety clinic. Um, so I work with this daily and it's a, um, there's gradations. So you could definitely come and talk to me afterwards. <laughs> okay. Because it could just be, sometimes mindfulness and just looking at this is not the wisest thing to do you know, we might need to move into another practice until we could sit with it as it is um, for any length of time. So we have to use a lot of discernment and wisdom there with what we're doing because we hear like mindfulness, just accept what is, unless it's going to bury you. It's not, <laughs> it's not so wise, you know, it's like I do it and now I'm worse, you know, so um, we might use other tools and then move into that eventually. The same is probably true for depression. Right? Same, yeah. With all something very heavy, like heavy, heavy loss, you know, things like this, we have to be very skillful with as we move. Into I went to Rick, see Rick Hansen on uh, Friday. And yeah. I 
part of the, one of the practices I wanted to share is, you know, a gratitude practice generally I associate with you say what you're, you know, what you're grateful for and I listen and I say what I'm grateful for and you listen. And I, he added a couple of things on I thought were really valuable. One of them was um, when we're listening to feel happy for the person, not just to actively listen, but to feel happy or grateful for the person that they feel grateful for these things. And then coming back, um, as you are receiving this gratitude, to just feel that rece receiving mind, which is something that I've, you know, as a person that works with people who are sick, you know, a lot of times receiving is something that we as humans struggle with. I mean, you know, we're good at giving a lot of times, but not so good at receiving. I don't say good at, but comfortable mm -hmm. with, whatever. But I thought it was a, you know, a way of really um, uh, adding juice to the uh, practice. And I was just thinking about the process that we do in the Sangha of listening and talking to each other. And I thought I would, you know, share that because it seems like, you know, some other things that we could add to, you know, being, you know, em empathetic and then also receiving that empathy or whatever it is, you know. I thought it was pretty valuable. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you all so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.